My brothers and sisters, the Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Mark. Jesus and his disciples left from there and began a journey through Galilee. But he did not wish anyone to know about it. He was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be handed over to men, and they will kill him. And three days after his death, the Son of Man will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to question him. They came to Capernaum, and once inside the house, he began to ask them, What were you arguing about on the way? But they remained silent. They had been discussing among themselves on the way who was the greatest. Then he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone wishes to be first, he shall be the last of all and the servant of all. Taking the child, he placed it in their midst, and putting his arms around it, he said to them, Whoever receives one child such as this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but the one who sent me. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Any visitor to my office or my apartment would probably get an idea real quick of some of my interests by just taking a look around. Among, obviously, some religious artwork and some family portraits, there's some bobbleheads from the TV show The Office. There's some nice artwork from my nieces and from former students. Some are caricatures of me, some less flattering than others. And there's a variety of things from the comic strip Peanuts, mostly my favorite character, Snoopy. Ever since I was in grammar school, I've been a big fan of Peanuts. I read the comic strip daily in these things we used to call newspapers. I have books of all the old comic strips. I watched every TV special of it multiple times. I can still remember the day President Ronald Reagan was shot in an assassination attempt not because of the tragic history of that day, but because it preempted the peanut special that was supposed to be on that night, and that was very traumatic for me. You have to cut me some slack. I was seven years old at the time, and this was before VCR, so it was a very traumatic evening. When I was in fourth grade, we were allowed to write a biography on anyone we chose, and that was an easy decision. I read a book on Charles Schultz, the creator of Peanuts, and I wrote a biography about him. And I decided, once our teacher had graded and returned the report, to mail it to Mr. Schultz, particularly since I had drawn a a picture of Charlie Brown and Snoopy on the cover that was pretty good, if I do say so myself. In a manner worthy worthy of Charlie Brown, this one day after school, when I was out in the snow with my friends sleigh riding, the office called our house. Charles Schultz's office called my house. The secretary explained they had misplaced my address and that Charles Schultz had read my biography. He pointed out that my teacher had incorrectly fixed the spelling of his name. I had it right, there is no T in Schultz. Take that, Mrs. Katchen. (laughs) Anyway, he was so appreciative, he wanted to send me a personalized picture of Snoopy, which my parents had framed and I still have to this very day. 
I'm still not quite sure what it was that made me such a fan of Peanuts growing up. I mean, compared with all the comic book characters that my friends liked, whether it was one of the superheroes like Superman or Spider-Man or someone without superpowers but super nonetheless like He-Man or G.I. Joe, Charlie Brown is a loser. He's a lovable loser, but seriously, the kid never kicks the football. He never receives a Valentine or a Christmas card. Heck, for some reason on Halloween, when everyone else is getting candy, he's given rocks. And when he flies a kite, there's a kite-eating tree out there to devour it. Even his dog, Snoopy, man's best friend, right? The one who has to depend on Charlie Brown to feed and care for him. Snoopy can't even be bothered to remember his name. He calls him the big, round-headed kid. It might be interesting to do a psychoanalyst of the, the comic strip character and try to pinpoint what it is that resonates with me and millions of others. If I'm honest, really honest, it's because I can relate to Charlie Brown a lot, especially as a kid. I was not a great athlete at all. I was not popular at all. I sure as heck wasn't feeling super about anything. I could not relate to G.I. Joe or Superman. If anything, I probably could use their help on the playground a few times. So yeah, I could definitely identify with Charlie Brown's struggles. But what makes him so endearing is that you never hear a jealous word out of his mouth. The most frustration he ever utters is ugh or good grief. He's even able to see something good in grief. One of his most often quoted sayings is a litany of things that starts with happiness is as he lists through a whole bunch of small little things like finding a pencil, a warm puppy, seemingly the ordinary things in daily life that he finds brings joy into his life. Charlie Brown is a hope-filled character who even though 10,000 times Lucy will pull the football away from him, that 10,000 first time he still wants to believe it might be different. Or maybe, just maybe, one day, the little red-haired girl might notice him. Charles Schultz, who was a devout Christian, embodied his comic strip and those characters with faith, hope, and love, showing how even in the midst of a sometimes mean world, when so many others would give into despair and depression, happiness can be found, grief can be good, and those virtues can radiate in the midst of imperfection. What has to be so frustrating to Jesus in this gospel tonight is that these, his, his closest followers, his apostles, seem to have forgotten what lovable losers they truly are. Yes, they're incredibly lovable in God's eyes. Every one of us is. But in the eyes of the world, they are losers. And instead of remembering that reality, they've started to believe more in themselves than in Jesus, who was doing all these wondrous things in the first place. What do I mean? Well, they've seen his miracles. They've witnessed the massive transformation in human beings that have an encounter with Jesus. They've even participated in that mission, being sent out to, to bring Jesus' healing to people who are sick and in need. They've heard the voice of God the Father himself saying, this is my beloved son. They recognize that everywhere they go, people are coming to Jesus in multitudes and they felt the excitement of being on this winning team. And all that's going to their head, so much so 
they forget their lowliness and their weaknesses. And that's what's going on as Jesus explains how he's going to allow himself to enter into the passion and the crucifixion. Listen to that again. Jesus is going to choose to allow himself to enter into that. He could have prevented it if he really wanted to. But he chooses to still do that because he understands that the most common thing that every one of us goes through is that we're going to have our Charlie Brown moments, if not worse. Every one of us experiences suffering. Every one of us experiences pain. Every one of us experiences loneliness at some point. No human being is immune to these things happening to them. So Jesus shares with these men who themselves have experienced all those things, his revolutionary new plan. He's saying, yeah, I can do all kinds of miracles. I can bring people back from the dead. So yeah, I can do a lot of things. But I'm going to choose to enter into this experience. I'm going to embrace the cross. I'm going to carry the cross. I'm going to die on the cross to give people a reason for them to maintain hope themselves in the midst of all those experiences when they embrace and experience the cross. If they choose to have faith in me and live in my love, they will find me there. The disciples remain silent. They're confused. They can or they don't want to understand what Jesus is talking about with all these prophecies of doom for himself. They'd rather focus on all the successes, the excitement of the crowds reacting to Jesus' miracles and imagining themselves one day being embraced by crowds as they do miraculous things. The disciples forget their lowliness and their weaknesses. They want to forget that it was in exactly those spaces and those places that Jesus first met them when they were down and out, when they were weighed down by sin, when they were rejected by the world. That's precisely where Jesus met them in their loser moments. And instead, they start arguing among themselves, who's the greatest? Good grief. Jesus wouldn't mind that their desire was to be great disciples, but that's not what they're arguing about. They're debating who's the greatest. They're arguing, probably asking, who did what for whom? As they try to decide what was more notable and important. Who did Jesus call first and last? What about that time you did such and such? All those meaningly stupid things. They're interested in performing great, exciting, popular things. Saying inspirational things like Jesus does. Thinking if they can perform like he does, they'll be as great as he is. They've allowed their human ambition to blind them from all of God's direction, his will, his plan. Jesus' reign and his kingdom will be established one heart at a time. And so Jesus turns it all around on them and says, you love me? You want to be great? He challenges. Then be great by following my example. And that's when he puts the child in their midst, a child who has absolutely nothing to offer. They can never repay the kindness and the generosity of adults. And he calls them to serve and take care of such as these children, little ones, or more broadly, those who have no power, those whose human dignity has been diminished or ignored or violated. 
those whom the world dismisses as problems or obstacles that they'd like removed. Jesus tells his followers that they will be great. They will glorify him when they serve, when they take care of, when they help those who are weak and in need, like little children. Because yes, Jesus' words in, in scripture are powerful and they're meaningful in very profound ways in the hearts of all believers. But communicating him and his word to those who don't even know him, that's initially done when we resist selfish ambition, when we allow jealousy to die in our lives, when we direct our self-centered desires to God-centered vision of putting others first. And yes, Jesus can be found in awesome, amazing miracles for sure, but he's most commonly seen in the miracle of selflessness when someone defends someone who is being mocked or gossiped in the cafeteria, in the dorm, or in the classroom. And yes, Jesus is real and present body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist we receive from from this altar at this most holy sacrifice of the Mass. But he's made real and present when we accompany someone who's sick or who's lonely or who's dying. And in doing so, the simplicity of the lovable loser Charlie Brown starts to make sense. We begin to see his little lessons of faith, hope, and love on an even larger scale, where our world is transformed by the sharing and the receiving of Jesus Christ's love, where grief is actually transformed into something good, and that we find the real meaning of what happiness is.